Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is a special episode to mark the 200th anniversary of the death of Napoleon Bonaparte. He died on May 5th, 1821, on the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic, in exile and in abject poverty. But how did he get to this point? Well, to take us through the life of Napoleon, we have the amazing Zach White. He knows everything there is to know about the Napoleonic era. He runs a podcast on it, he writes books on it, he teaches on it, he runs a website on it. He is brilliant. And what we've done is to split this into two parts. In the first part, Zach takes us through the meteoric rise of Napoleon, through the echelons of French power. And then, in part two, we look at the fall of Napoleon, especially after the Battle of Waterloo and his defeat by Wellington, and then his ultimate death. So, here, on the bicentenary of the death of Napoleon Bonaparte, is Zach White to tell us, first of all, about his life. Hi, Zach. Thanks for coming on the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks very much, James. I'm very well. It's great to be back on History Hit. It's hard to believe that it's almost a year now since I was talking to Dan about the 205th anniversary of Waterloo. I'm looking forward to discussing kind of this ultimate Marmite figure that was Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, wow. I like the way you describe him there. The ultimate Marmite figure. But you are, let's be very clear, Napoleon mad, or at least mad about the Napoleonic era. You've got your own podcast, The Napoleonicist. You've edited a new book on the age of Napoleon. And you've even got your own website, Napoleonic Wars. So yeah, you are Napoleon Mad. What is it that draws you to this divisive figure? Yeah, I I mean, I call myself the baby-faced Napoleon nerd, (laughs) not least because I look like I'm about 12 years old, so it's become a running joke with my friends and colleagues. It's a really odd thing, though, that you can't escape Napoleon. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of the guy, which is perhaps a slightly dangerous thing to admit at the start of a podcast episode on his life. Certainly the Napoleon fans are possibly kind of rage quitting as we speak, because when you start to suggest that perhaps Napoleon wasn't perfect, his ultra keen fans tend to get really quite angry about it. For me, I think it's the fact that if you're a historian of the era, you can't escape the fact that Napoleon shaped a huge element of 
what happened. And so, in fact, when I was doing my very first podcast episode, I looked at this issue of can you escape calling this period the Napoleonic Wars? And ultimately, I don't think you can. It's a very neat way of describing it. And of course, that's a bit of a misnomer, because really, as a historian, I look at everything from 1789 through to 1815. And of course, in 1789, Napoleon's a nobody. It's not until 1799, with the Brumaire coup, that he becomes the leader of the country. But in terms of his character, he's an incredible contradiction in terms. I quite often say that Napoleon's almost like a Play-Doh type figure in that you can mould him to almost whichever type of Napoleon you want to remember. If you really like the military hero image, then quite obviously he builds an empire off of his own back that rivaled Charlemagne in terms of size. You've got those great victories, most famously Austerlitz in 1805. You've got the way in which he motivated his men. Those who were fans of Napoleon will point to his administrative reforms, talking about how he consolidates the revolution. Debatable. He's credited with the civil code. Not entirely his work, but he had huge input within it. Education reform. He was a great stabiliser. One of the great benefits, for me at least, is I would say that in 1799, he's the man that France needs in terms of providing some initial stability after a lot of disorder during the revolution. But there's also a darker side, you know, that he is a dictator. We can't escape that. He was authoritarian. He brings in press censorship, a secret police. He reinstitutes slavery in Saint-Domingue. You've got military blunders, which no doubt we'll talk about. So I always feel that you need to balance the two sides. He isn't black or white. He is many shades of grey. And I think that's part of the complexity of understanding the guy. Well, tell me a little about his background, because wasn't he born on the... Italian island of Corsica that then becomes French in 1769. How does he go from this small Mediterranean island off Italy to become who he becomes? Yeah, this is a a really great starting point, really, because one of the things that some folks are never even aware of is that Napoleon's not French. He's Corsican, and that's an important distinction. So as you say, the island of Corsica had belonged to Genoa. It was passed over to the French in 1769. So for Napoleon, he has this kind of quite strong identity with the Corsican independence movement. One of his great heroes is Paoli, who was the great leader of Corsican independence at that time. There'd been a falling out, actually, because his father had been initially a contemporary with Paoli in pushing that cause, but then had in effect defected. He'd sort of seen the writing on the wall and ingratiated himself with the French monarchy. And it's actually that very fact that enables Napoleon to launch into his career, because off the back of that, his father is able to send him to military academy by benefiting from a patronage system whereby the sons of lesser nobility could send their sons to French military academy and they wouldn't have to pay the same fees. So if it wasn't for that, Napoleon wouldn't have been the person that we remember. But it does create a bit of a rift between Napoleon and his father because he sees that as a bit of a portrayal of the independence movement. And as you say, that Corsican identity does stay with him for a long time. When he goes to military academy, he's bullied because he has a very thick Corsican accent throughout his whole life. He doesn't learn French until a few years into his life, and he never shakes that accent. His complexion is Italian Mediterranean, so he physically looks a little bit different to those from the mainland of France. He's from the lower nobility, which means that in effect, in the hierarchy of Ancien Regime society, he's a nobody. You know, he's not one of the great movers and shakers. 
And because I used to be a teacher and I sometimes wonder if I was writing a report about Napoleon, how would I describe him? I think the politest way you could put it is that he's quite a contrary individual. He doesn't suffer fools gladly, even at this early stage in his life. He looks at his contemporaries and considers himself to be more intelligent than them. To be honest, he probably was. You know, that's kind of a fair assessment. He was also quite a, a nerd. And that's not a criticism. <laughs> Every historian is a nerd. He was incredibly bookish. He was reading up on people like Alexander and Caesar, thinking about the ways that he could emulate them. So, but as you say, yeah, that Corsican identity stays with him all the way through. And it's not until 1792, so a few years into the revolution, which happens in 1789, that he abandons the idea of Corsican independence. In Military Academy, he's writing about Corsican independence and everybody's sort of looking at his work going, why are you obsessed with this cause? They really don't understand it. But there's a, a rift that develops with Paoli because Napoleon feels more affinity to the revolution and wants to kind of work with the authorities. And in effect, the Bonaparte family has to flee the island. And it's at that point that Napoleon really becomes committed to being French in identity rather than being Corsican in identity. So is he more of a political chameleon? Is he someone who is a survivalist? It doesn't matter too much as he goes forward what the cause is, just so long as he's going forward and he's going up. Yeah, I think political chameleon is the perfect way to describe him. I think I've used that phrase a few times when talking about him. There's never any really clear sense of ideology for Napoleon, particularly in the early years during the revolution. One of the things that folks may not be aware of is that he's actually arrested at one point during the revolution because he's seen as being too close to the Robespierres. He's accused of being a Robespierre. So when Maximilien Robespierre falls from power, suddenly he's quite a problematic figure. And so he's placed under house arrest. Eventually, he's able to escape the threat of the guillotine. But I think that's something that stays with him all the way through his life. Ultimately, I would describe Napoleon as Machiavellian. He's probably the most Machiavellian individual I've come across since Machiavelli himself. The ends absolutely justify the means all the way through Napoleon's life. It doesn't really matter what the circumstances are, whether it's 10,000 men being killed in the course of a battle. If it achieves his aims, that's acceptable to him. And he physically says as much. We have famous quotes of that. And yeah, in terms of political identity, he's often moulded to be shown as a child of the revolution. I'm not entirely convinced by that argument. I think he takes what he likes and discards what he doesn't and does that all the way through his life to build what he wants and what he sees to be the best route forward for France and for himself. I'm not sure that you can describe Napoleon as a child of the revolution, seeing as he goes on to try and establish a hereditary monarchy in France. It seems kind of counter-revolutionary to me. It does. The argument swings on the fact that after Napoleon comes to power, what he does is rewrite the laws and institutions of France. And as you say, it's obviously hugely problematic that in 1804, he establishes his empire and positions himself as emperor and establishes a hereditary monarchy. But others would argue that he sweeps away a lot of the aristocracy of the Ancien Regime. Now, I would come back with a counter-argument and say, yes, he absolutely does. There's no disputing that. But what he replaces it with is his own system of patronage. And people talk about things like the Légion d'Honneur. But there's a lot of cronyism in Napoleonic France. Napoleon has a habit of toppling other monarchies and placing his family members on those thrones. Most famously, 
in Spain, which is what leads to the Peninsula War, which ends up being utterly disastrous for him, but also in the Netherlands, in Naples. It's a pattern of his behaviour. And with the Legion d'Honneur, yes, it is a system that is open to everybody. It says he is a great champion of promotion based on ability. No doubt about that. That's why the marshals are the great generals within Napoleonic France, and that's why they're lauded. But at the same time, if you look at the Legion d'Honneur, for all that it is open to civilians, the vast majority of the awards that go out are given to veterans, which says a lot about the way in which this system is skewed towards glory for the empire and, by extension, Napoleon's glory. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss okay zach i'm fully aware right now that we are two british people talking about napoleon on the 200th anniversary of his death and we can't speak too ill of the dead. So let's talk about some of his victories. I mean, first of all, you've got to admire the fact that he survives the French Revolution and jumps from side to side. And not only that, but works his way up. How does he manage that victory? I think the great thing about Napoleon is his energy. At whatever stage in his life, his energy is what sees him through. And you see this right from the very beginning. So the siege of Toulon, for example, 
the reason that he rises so quickly, and by the end of it, he's a Brigadier General at the age of 24, an incredible achievement by anybody's standards. He's able to demonstrate that drive and that commitment. How does he survive the revolution? I think that victory is partly about luck. It's partly about him making his own luck. So he does have this kind of dark spell in his life. We talked earlier about how he was able to escape execution for his association with the Rosepierres. Initially being associated with the Rosepierres was a great asset to him. That's part of the reason that he's able to exert so much influence on the siege of Toulon and be so instrumental in the turnaround of that siege, which wasn't going particularly well up until the point that he arrived. Afterwards, he has other mentors, notably Barras, and he's able to use that to his advantage. So there is a dark patch in his life when he turns down a posting to the Vendée to put down the internal uprisings. And he turns it down effectively because he considers it to be beneath him. He doesn't see the opportunities for glory, doesn't think it's going to be a good career move, and so he turns around and says no. But that effectively means he's unemployed. There's debate about to what extent does he consider suicide over the course of that time when he isn't employed and he's effectively just kind of wandering aimlessly around Paris looking for an opportunity. But it all kind of comes good for him in the end because he's in the right place at the right time in October 1795 when there's an uprising against the government. And his mentor Barras turns around to him and says, we need you to defend the government. Can we rely on you? And he and his junior, a cavalry commander who eventually becomes Marshal Murat, very flamboyant cavalry commander, People might have seen the great pictures of him in utterly beautiful uniform. What they collectively do is they gallop artillery through the streets of Paris. You know, people sort of scrambling out of the way to get out of the way and not be run over. Uh, it all happens that quickly. And this is positioned around the grounds where the government are meeting. And when the mob advances, they are fired upon. It's known as the whiff of grape shot. And this is one of those controversial moments because a number of them are armed. A number of these writers are armed. But there are women and children within that group who are killed in the process. So it's a controversial move, but it does save the government. And off the back of that, Napoleon finally gets the job that he wants, which is command of the army in Italy. He'd been badgering the government about plans to completely transform what was happening on the Italian front. And from that, after that point, there's almost no looking back for him. And he's responsible for a whole host of victories in Italy and earns this nickname, the Italian whirlwind, from his ability to use his army to pivot, strike and pivot again. And so is it off the back of these victories that he manages to rise to power? Yes and no, because what's so great about the Italian victories is it partly it makes him a household name because you have somebody who is consistently defeating the Austrians on a front that realistically nobody was talking about a great deal because the army was not in a good state when he found it in. Nobody was expecting what happened in the Italian campaign to unfold in the way that he did. So you've got those victories. He's also able to use the propaganda of that to further bolster his image. And Napoleon's a master of propaganda, whether it's within the army or whether it's back home. He's able to use that to make sure that he is a household name. But then he gets sent off to Egypt, which is a really interesting one. Another controversial episode, because for the government... Sending him to Egypt is really convenient because you've got this general whose star is clearly ascending, which is a bit of a problem because you don't want him becoming too popular because then he's a threat to the government. So when Napoleon puts forward this proposal to take Egypt and potentially use that as a launch pad to strike at the British Empire in India, it's the perfect solution. You go and, in effect, exile him, if you will. But it's a condoned exile. He's sent off on a task. 
If he achieves something, well, fantastic, but he's a long way away. He can't create any problems. Of course, the Egypt expedition starts to implode in the wake of Nelson's victory at the Battle of the Nile, at the Battle of Abakir Bay, which therefore means that the French fleet that would be resupplying Napoleon's army is shattered. And so the army is effectively marooned in Egypt. Initially, he tries to make the best of it, succeeds in taking control of Egypt. That's not a, a particularly difficult task for him but then has to work out, so where do we go from here? And seems to start contemplating some kind of almost Alexander the Great-style expedition to strike down from Egypt into India by crossing the Himalayas. Nobody's entirely sure how that was going to work. It's thought they would try and recruit along the way and do it in stages, but it all goes horribly wrong. There's a very controversial incident where the prisoners of war that are captured at Jaffa are executed. Now, I'm going to be deliberately balanced here because the reason that Napoleon puts forward that they're executed is a lack of supplies. And there are massive supply issues in the French army at that point in time. And when these prisoners are presented to him, he kind of gets quite angry and goes, why have you brought me these prisoners? I can't feed them. What am I meant to do with them? There is also a point that's made that a number of these prisoners were individuals who had been released from captivity beforehand on the understanding that they would never fight the French again. Now, that's therefore used as an argument that, well, perhaps therefore they forfeited their lives. The other side of this is the fact that these people are executed in cold blood. The numbers vary. The estimate is somewhere in the region of 3,000, maybe 3,500. So not an insignificant number of people who were killed in this way. And then he abandons his army under the guise, so he says, of going back to France to lobby for reinforcements. And he says he'll return and he'll bring more men and you know the glory will return. It never does. Personally, I think it's a very deliberate, cynical play because he sees that the government back in France is in trouble and this is his time. This is his opportunity and nothing beneficial is going to happen out in Egypt. It's only going to end one way. So if his future lies anywhere, it lies back in France. And he's able to go back. And then again, he's in the right place at the right time through his own doing to be able to take part in the coup, to lead that coup and position himself as the leader of France in 1799. Yes, he manages to overthrow the directory. He does. And it's a coup that nearly goes very, very wrong. So 18th Brumaire, the idea is that the old French directory will be toppled in a military takeover in effect using troops who Napoleon knows will support him. And then he and his contemporaries, the revolutionary Emmanuel Sia and Pierre Ducot, will form a new government. Now, it nearly goes very wrong because Napoleon walks in to one of the council meetings and he starts talking about how the revolution is over and the directory kind of turn around and go, what are you doing? No, this isn't happening. And he gets assaulted. He struggles, he almost faints at one point whilst trying to make his speech. He kind of has this crisis of confidence. And the whole situation is only saved by his brother Lucien. He makes this very dramatic gesture when the Council of 500 start accusing Napoleon of treachery by seizing a sword and saying, if my brother is a traitor, I will stab him myself. But he sees what's happening. And what he does is quietly leaves the chamber, calls in the grenadiers, and they are evicted. That's it. The government is gone. It's physically toppled. And so Napoleon and C.A. and Ducot position themselves as the consuls. Now, the idea of this consul system is quite interesting because it's meant to rotate. So Napoleon is first consul, and then 
the idea is that in time it will rotate between the others. So there isn't a single leader who can position themselves as the ultimate head of the country. But it somehow never does. Very quickly, CA and Duco are replaced within a month. So Napoleon doesn't hang around. Although there's talk about forming a constitution, which it's thought CA would write, very quickly you've got other people as consuls who are much closer to Napoleon politically. And as we know, in 1804, the whole consul system is removed completely and Napoleon proclaims himself emperor. Now, one little thing that I will say in Napoleon's defence is that there are plebiscites over the course of his reign. So in 1800, there's a plebiscite on the consulate system. In 1804, there's a plebiscite on the creation of the empire. In both votes, there is a very strong vote in favour, an overwhelming vote in favour. There is a small caveat to that, though, which I would also add, which is that the voting system was open to a number of flaws. We have clear evidence that there were some polls that were rigged. We have people inflating returns, people just adding noughts on returns to increase the number of votes in favour. The whole of the army was just assumed to have voted in favour. And so the counter-argument that I would make is that, yes, there's no question that the vote is overwhelmingly in favour. But in a society where the voting system is so clearly rigged and open to fraud, it's very easy to overplay the extent to which there was that support for what Napoleon was doing. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.